You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. Always trusts always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Lord, I pray that you bless your word today you change us from the inside out. And we would be those that are known by our love. Amen. It's good to be back with you all. I was here last Sunday for Dr. Joel Mutamale, and, uh, but I was jet lagging at that point. Um, we were having service at 11, 15 p.m. in my body and mind, uh, which was okay. My voice was really warmed up by that point. Um, But I do appreciate uh, the incredible teaching from Dr. Chris Johnson, from our own Keevan Carley, and then Dr. Joel last week. And I want to say, as I was in Manila for two weeks uh, in seminary with students and men and women from 29 different nations, that God is doing amazing things all over the world. That should be exciting to us. Uh, That actually was a point of, yes, amen, pastor, that's good. God is doing things all over the world, but what's he doing in my life? That's kind of how we often respond, isn't it? It's great that he's doing stuff over there in that other part of the world, but what about me? I also want to say how proud I am of our uh, youth mission team that just got back yesterday from Baja, Mexico. Okay, good. We got a little response out of that. That's good. Good to see that y'all are awake. Did y'all stay up too late watching fireworks or listening to them last night? It's going to happen all weekend, so you might as well get ready. Uh, The team came back. I know they're jet lagging. Most of them are here today, Uh, but I appreciate all that they did, all that God was doing through them. We had an incredible group of young people as I was talking to my wife each day and and then also my daughter, but my wife was just saying our kids are doing amazing. They're phenomenal. And, uh, And I will also say we had an amazing group of leaders on that team with 
uh, Pastor Keevan, Brandon May, Carla Gerard, and Angelica Maxwell, uh, a credible group of leaders. And I know that a lot of people leaned into them as they were leading a lot. And I appreciate all the people that were touched. Yes, the houses that were built, but the lives that were changed and people that responded to the gospel. And that's who we are, a church that cares about the nations. And as excited and as, and as wonderful as it is to have the freedom and appreciate what, what uh, this means for us and our nation as we celebrate Independence Day and those types of things, as grateful as I am for that and those freedoms, I want you to know that I was reminded all the last few weeks while I was in Manila and as I watched our team this past week that God is a God of the nations and everything that he is doing is sovereignly moving and propelling every nation, tribe, and tongue to worship around his throne that is his goal and that is his purpose he's not God of a nation he is a God of the nations the gospel tells us this is possible because of the great love of God that I just read about a moment ago demonstrated through the life the death the resurrection the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus Christ and then the coming Holy Spirit that now dwells inside of our lives for that I am grateful for the great love of God that propels us to to be on mission to the nations. So I want to talk about the greatest of these, which is love. And when I read that passage of Scripture that we just read, and i got to tell you that the reason I read the passage of Scripture is because I had no other way of knowing how to come out of that time of worship other than just to meditate and read upon God's Word and His great love for us that would cause us to have the ability to wait, that would cause us to have the ability to believe for miracles in our lives. And I just wanted to kind of run up and down the aisle a minute ago. I ain't going to lie. But I know if I did that, it would cause some issues probably for my own heart. Like, what are you doing? Uh, and maybe for you as well. But I want to think this morning as I was reading this passage of Scripture, not only do I see all of the challenging characteristics of what God's love is and what it should look like in our lives, we often just put this in some sort of marriage verse. This is what we read at, at uh, the altar when we're getting married, and yet it, as, as, as wonderful as that is, and we should love our spouses this way, this is actually to the church. This is how we, you and I, are to love one another. That's what this is all about. And I see how challenging that is as I go through those characteristics and it's just the power of God's word pressing into my heart. But I also see the Apostle Paul telling us this, church, motives matter. I want us to be real honest with God and with one another right now because that's what you should do in church is be honest with God and with one another. How often do you do the right thing according to God's word? Now, before you answer, let me just go ahead and tell you this, that none of us are batting a thousand because none of us are Jesus. None of us do the right thing all the time. But let me ask you an even more important question, actually a more difficult question, one that I see as I'm reading this passage of Scripture, is how often do you do the right thing with the wrong motive? Mmm, that one stings. Motives matter and what Paul is saying the greatest overarching motive for all that we do and all that we say is love so I wonder how much we are doing without actually loving how much are we doing in the name of Jesus how much are we doing as the church how much are we doing that we feel is right but isn't 
loving. Which according to Paul means we gain absolutely nothing from that. This is what I want to preach about this morning. A love, we just sang about love like this. That was the first song. The title of this morning's message is a love like what? What is the kind of love that God has called us to that we're to live by? That we will be known by our love. A love that is not vacuous. A love that is not anemic. But a love that is tangible. And a love that is countercultural. A Micah 6-8 kind of love that, that also would include a loving action and motive where we do justly and we love mercy and we walk humbly with our God all simultaneously. And I'm here to say it's very difficult to do all three of those things at the same time. Now you might be tempted to go easy on yourself this morning, but I'm not going to let you. When it comes to your motives, maybe you go easy on yourself because usually we are the most easy on ourselves when it comes to our motives. So the case we think we've got the motive thing on lock, let me read what Proverbs 16.2 says. All a person's ways seem pure to them, but motives are weighed by the Lord. Meaning when it comes to motive, you are your own best hype person. Like, man, yes, you are loving no, this is what you really mean. No, this is, you're, you've got pure motives right here. This isn't about you. We always think we've got the best intentions, that love is our guide in all that we do. But God, the scripture says, is the one who will ultimately decide whether or not that's the case. As human beings, we are able to rationalize and justify just about any kind of behavior. So Proverbs is warning against that normative self-centeredness saying, listen, I know you can go ahead and justify what you're doing, but you need to stop playing and allow God to judge your heart. We need to stop playing and ask God to start purifying our hearts. God knows the intentions, Scripture says. Now, I know none of you have ever done anything in your life with an ulterior or questionable motive. Like when you were a young kid and you wanted to go do that thing that you knew your parents or your grandmother or whoever was caring for you wasn't going to allow you to do. It wasn't like a touch or go. No, it was a hard pass, a hard no. But you decided you were going to try the butter them up trick. And you were going to do everything you were supposed to do. And you were going to say everything you were supposed to say. In hopes that, what? You could get them to say yes. Let me just tell you, that is an impure motive, you bunch of sinners. Like, that is not how we go about it. And yet, all of us have done that. That's called impure motives. I know none of you husbands have never done anything in your life with ulterior motives. And, and, and wives, you too. I know you've never done anything for your husband with ulterior motives. And the reason it's so easy to justify or rationalize is because we are prone to self-centeredness. We are like defense lawyers in our own minds, telling ourselves like Jack Nicholson, you can't handle the truth. No, you're right. You're loving. And we have a really bad ability to be able to discern when it comes to our own motives. I'm being loving here. No, no, I think I'm being right here. But here's the greatest litmus test when it comes to love. God's love is others-centered. My love is prone to being self-centered. I'm looking out for myself. God's love is always 
others centered. If we fast forward to chapter 16 in the chapter I just read in 1 Corinthians, from 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter as it's known, we see Paul's sign off in chapter 16 of this letter and he's basically saying, here's the overarching theme again, be on your guard, stand firm in your faith, be courageous, be strong, and then verse 14, do everything in love. So what you see is there's four parallel commands that all have these military metaphors, if you will. Be on guard, stand firm, be courageous, be strong. As a lot of commentaries say, that be courageous should probably be rendered as be adults. So it's like put away the immaturity that has led so many of you into the problems that you have and grow up in the Lord. And here's what he says. He balances all these commands of strength with this call to love in verse 14. So this whole discussion of of spiritual gifts in chapter 13 and, and chapter 12 and 14, all the Christian activity must take place, he's saying, within the sphere of putting others above yourself because that's what God's love does. God's love is others centered. God's justice is always loving and God's love is always just. Motives matter and our motives matter in being love in all that we do. Righteous justice is loving justice. There is no justice without righteousness, and there is no righteousness without love. For example, just this past week, our nation obviously goes through all kinds of things. It's like every week we could talk about something and And everybody expects most of the time that the pastor would address particular things. I usually am trying to be slow to speak, as Scripture says. Don't always do that well, but I do that for the most part. But we had this Supreme Court ruling, obviously, this past week that overturned Roe. Now, there are smarter people than me that can argue the legal and the constitutional reasons why this was a good constitutional ruling, but let me just say from my standpoint as a Christian, as a person that is bound to love and bound to protecting life, I believe Roe represented a grave moral and ethical wrong, and its demise is a just decision, but listen, it can only be just and righteous holistically if it is motivated by love. And there typically aren't laws that are motivated by love. That's why the church is called to be the one that is motivated by love. So, motives matter because pure motives inform pure actions. And what I mean is whether or not what just took place becomes more than just a judicial and polarizing political move will be determined by those who bear the name of Jesus, living a pro-life ethic from womb to tomb for no other reason than to love others more than we love ourselves. There are so many ways this can happen day in and day out and through our lives as compassionate and merciful people who do justly, who love mercy, and who walk humbly. I don't have time to mention them all, but I will give you a few. However, one could be that we are adamant and that we are passionate about the discipleship of young people in every socioeconomic strata to be followers of Jesus Christ. It could be through helping one of the most under-resourced ministries in our nation, ironically, in the crisis or care pregnancy centers. 
It could be emptying out the foster care system in our community like one church I know of did in Birmingham, Alabama. It could be adoption. It could be asking why women would seek an abortion in the first place because it's not just because it's legal. No law has ever changed or stopped the human heart from doing what it wanted to do, whether legal or illegal. It hasn't. So it has to be more than that. I don't just do things because they're legal or illegal. We must compassionately and lovingly listen to those who are hurting or afraid or even those who are hardened and angry so we can begin answering complex issues with truth, love, and the compassion of Christ. To celebrate the changing of a law without loving actions and without a loving motive is not merciful or loving. It's just legislative. And there is no true justice without love and righteousness. And because God has instructed us to live with both justice and love interconnected, we must have both. It's not time to gloat. It's time to love. It's not time to preach morality. It's time to live morally. It's time to wash feet. The greatest thing we can do is love like God loves. Which means that we're called to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with God all at the same time. You know why this is so important? Because as Captain and Tennille said, love will keep us together. None of y'all know that. Well, some of y'all do. 1975. I will, I will, I will. Love is what keeps us together. If it's the only power that can keep us united as one, that's why Jesus prayed that we would love one another and that we would be unified. Love is the only way we stay together. Love is the only witness we have when we love one another the way the Bible prescribes and describes that we should. Problematically, we live in a world where we rage and rip apart people, and we say it's for righteous reasons. But there's nothing righteous about it because there is what? There's no love. Our motives are messed up. Let me give you a helpful grid to work through when it comes to being in unity. I shared this with our elders this past week. I shared this with the staff. And now I'm going to share it with you. With the love of Christ in us. Now watch, John 17 says the love of Christ that's in you and I is the same love that God has for the Son. What? That's incredible. The same love that the Father has for the Son is the same love of Christ that is supposed to be inside of us towards one another. And we have a few categories that we can put our views and our issues and our opinions in. And here's what they are. I'm going to draw up here because this is what I I can do. Let's make sure that, yes, it's 80-80. So that's, whoo, there you go. Here's the grid. This is just some code I was giving to my man Cam back there. This is how we often will look at and do with things in life. First of all is we're going to die for it. I'm going to die on that hill. You know what I found interesting is that it's not so much the hill we're going to die on. It's the hill we want somebody else to die on. Like we're going to kill somebody on that hill. It's not about us dying. It's about you dying. And then the next one that we often have is... We're going to divide over this. Then there's this one. We're going to debate over this. And then there's this one. We'll just decide. And let me explain a little bit. Most of life, particularly in the church for Christians, lives within these two areas right here. 
debate and decide. And yet, we live most of our lives right here. You know what we die over? Whether Jesus is the Son of God. That's what we die over. You know what we die over? Whether we're justified by faith. That's what I'm willing to die over. There's some things that are obvious and have always been obvious through orthodoxy of what the Bible has said and what Scripture has taught and what the church has believed for thousands of years. Those are the things that we die over. We die for the gospel. We don't die for the color of the stage. Then divide. This is stuff that Scripture would speak about. This is stuff that Scripture is very clear about, and yet there's still some differences about what we believe Scripture to say. Here's some things that we might divide about. Like, I know what Scripture says. We're going to divide about whether or not you believe the Holy Spirit is still at work today. He is. That's the only way that I live and move and have my being can do anything that is honoring and glorifying to God is through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And if you believe that's not happening and he's not working today, then we're going to divide. If you don't believe that one of the goals of the Christian body of Christ is to be a multi-ethnic display of God's power in the earth today and that to the best of our ability in the context that we live in, we should fight for unity between people that are usually divided. If you don't believe that, then we're going to divide, and we have. But then there's a lot of things that we can just debate over. Scripts like, is Jesus pre, post, mid-trip? We can debate about it. People have for years. I'm not going to divide over it, and I'm sure not going to die for it. And then there's other things. There is scant biblical theology, or the Bible says very little or nothing about. Well, then let's just decide. But we're not going to divide, and I'm not going to die for it. That's preferential. That's a lot of preferential stuff right in here be about music it could be about liturgy it could be about all kinds of things and everybody wants to die over it and divide over it and you know what God says love because the overarching thing whether or not I'm going to die divide debate or decide the overarching thing over all of that is to love So let's talk about a little bit before I land this plane in the next hour or so, what Jesus did in loving us. And I'm going to go through these quickly because I don't have time, but Jesus loved perfectly. His motives were always pure. He was always righteous. He was always justice. He was always moved with mercy and compassion, and he always was humble. You know what's tempting is that when I'm actually doing something just and loving that I'm not all that humble about it. I'm like, yeah, I am so loving and, and I am doing some really good things. Practically, what did this look like in the life of Jesus? And then consequently, how should it look in our lives? First of all, Jesus loved by serving. I'm just going to read a scripture. I think this is very self-explanatory, but we are to empower people from underneath, not by lording over. We love by serving. I I just can't spend time here. Philippians 2, in your relationships with one another. Just right off the bat, in your relationships with each other, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a, what? Servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus loved by serving. Church, we have to be known as those who serve rather than those who want to be served. Secondly, Jesus loved by listening. Oh, listen up. I'm just seeing if y'all are listening. Effective listening is a skill that is foundational for healthy, loving relationships. Communication gurus call listening the missing half of communication. It's not normal for us to listen. I would venture to say it takes the power of the Holy Spirit inside of us to actually be able to listen well. For while there is a vast amount of talking and posting and tweeting and TikToking, there is very little listening. How much listening is taking place? Jesus commanded us, consider carefully how you listen. After he gave the whole parable of the sowers, and he's talking about the soil of our hearts, be careful how you listen. So listening is not a passive skill. It's not merely being quiet until somebody else gets done talking and let somebody else speak. It requires full attention, focused concentration, and careful, considerate thinking. You know what I think that means? Most of us are not good at listening. I'm not good at listening at times. It's okay to admit it, but here's what I want you to know. Jesus, on the other hand, was phenomenal at listening. Why? Because he listened with loving ears. Love was the overarching characteristic that informed the way he listened. His motive was love. He listened to others, asking questions in response. He also listened to what was not being said. He was skilled at drawing others out, communicating sympathy and compassion. What do you think Martha would say about how Jesus listened to her in Luke 10? Or maybe the blind man Bartimaeus in Mark 10? Or the woman at the well in John 4? What would they say, or even the disciples, about how well Jesus listened to them? He listened. He never merely listened to words, but he listened for attitudes. He listened for the whole range of emotions. Jesus listened in a way that communicated compassion and care, taking the time to understand others. If we are going to be a loving church in focus, then we've got to be a listening church. And not just to those who we like to listen to, but even those we loathe to listen to. And before you say, well, I'm just not a good listener, You're right. You're probably not. But here's the amazing thing. By God's grace and through the power of the Holy Spirit and through you admitting that and then doing some work, I'm telling you that listening is a skill that you can develop. But you'll never do it apart from God's grace and the power of the Spirit within you, nor will you do it as long as you love yourself or your own voice more than you do the person that you're listening to. In Proverbs 18, 13, it says, He who answers before listening... That is his folly and his shame. Ever done that? I'm listening. I'm already thinking about my answer. I'm already thinking about my rebuttal. I'm thinking about how I'm going to come back. I'm thinking about how I'm about to roast you. I'm thinking about all these things. Listening takes love. My, def- my motive is to listen to you. And it isn't so that I can have you tell me what a good listener I am. See, I'm telling you, this motive thing will mess you up. It's like... You're such a good listener. Oh, thank you. 
I'm already, my humility's already shot. It's because I love them and I care about them enough to try and to hear their heart. So love is going to inform how I listen. Jesus loved by listening, so are we. Jesus loved by providing. We're going to sing a song at the very end of this message this morning, one of my favorite songs. I, it's on, been on repeat, and then I might have this weight on you on my repeat. But the reality is God is Jehovah Jireh, which means he is our provider. How has he provided for us? Well, first of all, Jesus himself was all the provision that we would need. His entire life then was also marked by practical provision for those around him in meaningful ways. When people were sick, when people were hungry, when people were afraid, when people were possessed, when people were tormented, hurting, alone, scared, persecuted, he lovingly provided for them all that they needed. That's what scripture tells us, that God will supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It is not loving to fail to provide for those who are in need that we can help. Jesus loved by providing what those around him who needed help, what they desperately needed. Sometimes it was healing, sometimes it was listening, and sometimes it was the salvation of their heart. Other times it was just food in their stomach. Jesus loved by providing. Jesus loved by washing feet. And really, this is kind of a a metaphor, if you will, for how we serve. But I really wanted to include it because I want us to think about it. We see God's love exhibited by the washing of feet in the Scripture. There's two stunning stories. One is when Mary washed Jesus' feet. As a matter of fact, not sure it was Mary every time, but there was a woman in every gospel washing Jesus' feet. The one in John was Mary and with expensive perfume. And when Mary anoints Jesus' feet and wipes it with her hair, she's foreshadowing Jesus' actions at the upcoming Last Supper because that was the most astonishing action of washing feet. The inexplicable story of love when the Lord over all creation bowed down and washed the feet of his disciples. And what he's doing is he's teaching them how to love one another through sacrificial, humble service. So here's what we need to know. Before you go dying on a hill, maybe you ought to wash somebody's feet first. Isn't it interesting that before Jesus went and died on the hill, he washed his disciples' feet first. And I thought about having a chair out here and like a little basin and and trying to make it all, I don't know, like romantic and pretty like we often do feet washing, but it isn't that way. Matter of fact, they're just kind of, I'm just going to go ahead and get all humble here. They're kind of, oh, I just said it. They're, they're, they're just laying there on the ground. They're eating. They're like this. And, and Jesus, all of a sudden, this is how they say they kind of would eat like this with their feet away from the table because their feet were nasty. Some of y'all's feet are nasty. That's why they're under the table, thank God. And you got your shoes on still because if you took your shoes off, nobody would be able to eat anything. I don't know where that's coming from. It's probably because I'm laying down here on the floor and it feels really weird. But the reality is, this is how they were eating. And all of a sudden, nobody would have been paying attention too much except that Jesus gets up and somebody starts, whoa, Jesus, what you doing to my feet? Because this is how it would have been. It's it's just very humbling. And and I'll back up and, and all of a sudden, here's Jesus washing his disciples' nasty feet. The Son of God, washing feet. And it wasn't like he was about to get something good from them. 
They were all about to run away and betray him. And then he did what Jesus' love does next. Jesus loved by dying. Ultimately, the Bible teaches that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Romans 5 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' love was sacrificial. Biblical love looks like Jesus on the cross. Love is sacrificial. It's willing to regard others more important than oneself. That's why Jesus says that his disciples are to be known by what? How they love each other. And at the same time, he defines a disciple as one who will deny himself, die to himself daily by taking up his cross and following him. As a matter of fact, Jesus takes the Old Testament principles of righteousness and justice and he absorbs them into his radical call to love one another. Jesus' love, however, is not weak. It weeps at injustice. Jesus' love angrily denounces injustice. Jesus' love sacrifices self for the sake of justice. And Jesus does justly, loves mercy, and walks in perfect humility. The question is this, are we, as God's people, the church in the earth today, going to be righteous while doing justly because the righteous are motivated by love. The righteous that are, we are those who are willing to be disadvantaged for the sake of community. We're willing just to decide and to debate, but we're not willing to divide and die for the sake of community. Jesus' understanding of love makes it clear that the people of God have to be willing to be disadvantaged for the sake of the gospel and our witness to the world. It's the kind of love that sacrifices for the other, even our enemies, that the Bible calls us to imitate. First Peter, for you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. The starting point for doing justly is love. Love in which the other person is more important than ourselves. For Jesus, justice without love is not justice, and love without justice is not love. I love the way Reverend Martin Luther King said it. What is needed is a realization that power without love is reckless and abusive. And love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is love correcting everything that stands against love. The Bible teaches that justice is done in the name of love and for the sake of healing our relationships with one another and with God. True justice is living out the truth of Scripture, speaking truth to others. It's done in love. It's spoken through mercy. It's done in humility. God requires us to do justice and not to place ourselves as superior to others, but to walk in love, sharing and living out the truth of the gospel. And it starts by loving so much that we would be willing to wash the feet of those who might even betray us. To love mercy means to love mercy that we've been shown by Christ first. And in exchange, we, to love showing mercy to others the same way that we've received it. Our God is both a God of justice and a God of mercy, and we should all be thankful that he's not just a God of justice. For without mercy, we would all be dead in our sin. God represents all that is just, yet he chooses and has chosen to show us mercy and grace still every day. And the Bible clearly teaches us that, that none of us 
have lived a perfect life, that we all fall short of the glory of God. And yet, not one of us deserves mercy, grace, or forgiveness. And before a just God, we stand accused. But because of his mercy, we are not consumed. And because his compassion never fails in any way, he loves us and justifies us. God, who is the author of justice, simultaneously chooses to show us mercy time and time again. Why? Because God loves us. Maybe we can see why the Bible says love is the greatest thing and the thing that we most oftentimes lack. What 1 Corinthians 13 is teaching that I led off with this morning is saying that everything we do should stem from love. Most importantly, God's love. And then our love for him and our love for one another. If we didn't have love, here's why this is most important. If we didn't have love, it wouldn't build our faith because faith's foundation is that of love, the love of the Father. If we didn't have love, we wouldn't have hope as hope is only found in the love of God. That's why you can't really have hope apart from Christ. Jesus has given us that hope. Love is what led our heavenly father to allow his only son to come to earth and to be the once and for all sacrifice for our sins. Love is what led Jesus to cry out to God, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing when his placement on the cross was due to our sinful actions. Love is what the Holy Spirit brings to every one of us every day if we were called on him, loving continually when it hurts, when it's hard, when we're happy, when we're sad, when we're frustrated. Without love, faith and hope are impossible and true justice never takes place. Can I just close by telling you that even when you do everything right by God, people will misunderstand your motives. I said motives matter, but don't expect everybody to understand your motives. Jesus did everything right. And people still misunderstood his motive. He's going to overthrow He's going to overthrow the Roman government. He's going to do this. He's not going to do this. If I was Jesus, I'd have been like, man, y'all are mistaken my motives. But no, he just kept loving. When we love like Jesus, people will misunderstand our motive. But watch how Jesus fits into this framework. I'll go back to this little rudimentary spelling and drawing I did a minute ago. Somebody said, are you going to be drawing this morning? I said, no, I don't draw. I write. But here's what happened. Jesus died. He didn't ask us to die. He died and took our place so that we would not divide. I love that. That's what Ephesians says, that Jesus broke down the wall of hostility that caused us to be divided. So Jesus died so that we would not divide. And there is no debate because as we are serving him as Lord and Savior, then we have to decide and we have to choose who this day we're going to love. So Jesus died, so we wouldn't be divided, so we could debate with one another and still decide that we're gonna walk this life out together. So often, we decide to die and divide over things that we should just be debating and deciding. Because love is not the overarching characteristic that's determining what we do. Church, I want us to be the type of church that is known for our love for God and for one another. 
the love that causes us to serve one another, the love that causes us to listen to one another, the love that causes us to provide for one another, the love that causes us to wash one another's feet, and the love that causes us not to die on a hill for ourselves, but to die on our hill for others. To lay down your life, which Scripture says is the greatest indication of love, that you would lay down your life for a friend. I thought about one other situation because God is the one who provides forgiveness and love. I thought about the situation where Jesus caught the woman in adultery, or he didn't, the, the religious leaders did, and they called Jesus into it, and they've thrown her out to the middle of the city, and they're trying to embarrass her and shame her and, and, and throw rocks at her and stone her to death. I thought, man, isn't that how culture treat, makes us behave? Like, come out here. You got to say something. You got to do something. Look at this. And by the law, Jesus could have picked up a rock. And here's what I think the choice is for us today. We can pick up rocks and we can start to throw them. That would be us causing somebody else to die for something we believe in. Or we can kick rocks and divide. That seems like a real easy decision these days. Just kick rocks, I'm out. Or forget the rocks and go wash feet. Don't throw them and die. Don't kick them and divide. Just go wash feet and love like Jesus loved. And then Die to yourself. We need God's help. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to do that. You have been listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We hope God met you right where you're at today. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you're listening from and visit infocuschurch.org for more on all that's going on in the life of our church.